Wandering Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 115. Well, with the help of my good friend Bill, who is an ardent listener to the podcast, I settled in on where we are going next in the story that is JFK, The Enduring Secret. I wish that all we had to do was to keep roaming around in Dealey Plaza or inside or around the Daltex building or follow the trail somewhere into Oak Cliff. And then, miraculously, that is all that would be required to eventually find the answer to this mystery. But this story is much bigger than all of that, and we all know it. In one of the earlier episodes of our podcast, we talked a little bit about the predominant conspiracy themes that exist today. Without trying to dive in as to which one is correct or not, or whether any of them are correct, you first have to get up above it all and have some perspective on the history of the 20th century. For anyone who has followed a good part of this podcast, you know I love history. And there is perhaps no time in man's existence, no 100-year period in the last 5,000 years of man's existence on this earth that have been so packed with so much in the way of extraordinary events. And the world is moving so rapidly, moving forward so rapidly, that here we are in year 2022, and it's hard to believe that some of these themes that I'm about to speak to you about were so predominant in the decades before and after the JFK assassination. But they were. And some of them, perhaps many of them in some ways, still dominate. What am I talking about? Well, let's just spend a few minutes on what really comprises the overarching theme of the 20th century. And that is the theme related to war and destruction. For it truly defined the first half of the 20th century, and its reach carried far into the second half of the century as well, provided the launching pad that allowed the formation of the CIA and its overarching potential, and the looming impact of war allowed the CIA to become what it did. And war of any kind makes for odd alliances as we explore the existence of the mafia and how it became intertwined with the CIA and with the trade unions and one of those moments where common enemies make for strange bedfellows. Yes, it's true, you really can't write this stuff. It is truth that is more interesting and more far out than fiction. It reads better than an Ian Fleming spy novel or a Godfather movie segment. And to understand the historical underpinnings of the 20th century is to equip ourselves for the rest of the story that we are going to tell about the JFK assassination. We may not solve the crime by telling the story, or stories actually, and some folks may even call it a wander with no real significance related to who killed the president. In the end, I will leave that judgment up to you. I doubt you will say it is insignificant. You will likely say it was interesting. Well, I think that's what you might say. It's really hard to believe that our government would be so engaged and so intertwined in all of these dubious ways. But the world was a rapidly changing place and getting more complex by the moment. Maybe tragic circumstances like the death camps at Auschwitz should remind us of the universal brutality of man 
Yet, there was still an element of innocence and trust that underscored our country in the late 1940s and 1950s and really well into the 1960s. So without getting too off track, let's get back to the mega themes that shaped everything else. Like I said, the overarching theme of war and destruction was at the forefront. So let's start with World War II. It was the largest and most deadly war that has been waged in the history of the world. It truly was the crescendo of a series of military confrontations that began early in the 20th century in many parts of the globe and certainly was irrevocably connected to the aftermath of World War I in the onerous terms under which Germany was required to surrender and make reparations. But it wasn't just the German conflict that caused all of this. Without going into the details of the war itself, there were several overarching themes that came out of World War II. The first, of course, was the massive loss of human life on a scale that has never been seen on this planet up to that time, and hopefully will never occur again. Official estimates of the casualty losses have actually changed dramatically over the years, and the method of measurement and the period of time measured has also contributed to those changes. But regardless of how you get to the numbers, the latest lost estimates indicate that perhaps some 80 million human lives were lost as a result of this all-out physical war. Now, that number should be almost unfathomable to any of us. As many of you know who have listened to the podcast all the way through, I have my own tragic story, losing my oldest son some six years ago. My loss, as tragic as it was and is, is just an N of one when compared to what happened in World War II. There were 80 million ends of one in that war. Why I am starting with a loss of life is twofold. First, human destruction on that scale, at least to some, creates a level of numbness for those who are exposed to it. I guess in a way it both heightens and cheapens the value of a human life for the populace as a whole who are living in that era. You are left with a society where some are unequivocally prepared to kill or be killed because they see the existence and the essence of pure evil. After all, how can 80 million lives be obliterated from this earth without there being some level of evil around it? Whether it was the evil that started it or the evil that finished it or the evil that met in between. The killing of man evokes the timeless moral question that inevitably comes with the assessment of war and man's inability to settle differences without using war as a primordial tool of existence. The second theme related to World War II is that while it might have emasculated, finally, the German grievances and the Japanese grievances, what it then brought on was a circumstance that truly began to split the world into two into two brand new and very opposing camps. During the war, the U.S. had been uneasy allies with the Russians. The truth is that the Russians were in the war before we were, and that impacted the scale of human suffering and loss of life which the Russians experienced compared to the Americans. The war had already escalated exponentially for them before that occurred for us. The Russians wanted us in the war much earlier than we got in, and for that, 
They were quick to blame us for their losses, and they were quick to physically commandeer much of the conquered territory toward the end of the war. And they did so as a down payment from the West for the price that Russia had paid during the war. The uneasy alliance between these two great powers, America and Russia, that emerged during the war to defeat Hitler and Japan was to fall apart after the war and create the next phase of tension in the world, the Cold War, which is our next big theme. The Cold War was an ideological battle on its most fundamental level of good versus evil. And who was good and who was evil was defined by both sides for their own proprietary purposes. It was propaganda at its finest by everyone involved. And in the simplest of terms, it was a question of whether our fundamental founding principles would prevail. Republics, where the power was intrinsically retained by the people and whose democratic societies assured representative government with an emphasis on personal liberties. It was all that versus the concept of communism. The state first as the organism of being or the individual first as the organism of being. And like the movies of the day, it seemed to everyone on both sides to be a black and white issue, open and shut. Most folks simply framed it up as capitalism versus communism, the simple proxy statement setting forth the differences. So the next few episodes are history lessons of sorts, and it will be a mixture of me and a mixture of good clips from shows that have done a nice job summarizing the points that I hope we all can level set with once we wander through all the history lessons that I have planned. We'll start to get into the details related to the assassination that involved the CIA, the Cubans, and the mob, and maybe even a little bit more than that. I promise it's fascinating, and it's a fascinating yet tragic part of our country's history. So without further ado, let's start by listening to this excellent discussion of the start of the Cold War that was done on the series named Timeline. And this particular episode was narrated by the notoriously conservative actor, Charlton Heston. Despite his own political leanings, I think this segment is very well done. I hope you think so too. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 115 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. By 1945, the world was tired of war. The Axis powers had been defeated and to a large extent destroyed. But as the victors divided the spoils, new conflicts emerged among former allies. At the heart of these disagreements were the fundamental differences between the Soviet Union and the United States. One was communist, the other capitalist. In the Eastern system, the interests of the state were preeminent. The Western system emphasized the rights of the individual. Neither side trusted the other, yet neither side wanted a final confrontation. An incubus sort of remained over Europe for many years after World War II, which was the belief by many military men that one day 
the Russians would suddenly make a move and head for the English Channel. This state of perpetual tension was called the Cold War. Now, in the second half of the 20th century, the United States and the Soviet Union set their intelligence services against each other in a secret and deadly game of global one-upsmanship. How many weapons did the other side have? What did they plan to do with them? Not knowing bred fear and anxiety. Not knowing drove each to build more and bigger weapons of mass destruction, racing to be ready for the day when the other would show its hand. Intelligence became the world's most precious commodity. Intelligence gathering the world's most dangerous profession. For the United States, that job fell to the men and women of the Central Intelligence Agency. At the outset of World War II, the Soviet Union was the largest country on Earth, covering one-seventh of the planet's surface. By 1946, having absorbed territories previously held by Germany and Japan, the communist nation now controlled one-sixth of the planet. Western leaders had good reason to believe that the Soviets wanted more. Only months after the Yalta Agreement, Premier Joseph Stalin had publicly declared that the world was too small to peacefully contain both communism and capitalism. War between the systems, the Russian dictator said, was inevitable. The United States brought World War II to an abrupt end with the atomic bomb. Western strategists now believed they at least held that trump card against Soviet aggression. Then, one week after Stalin's ominous prediction, a ring of Russian spies was caught stealing atomic secrets in Canada. The idea that the Russians might be close to building the bomb sent a shudder throughout the free world. On February 26, 1946, George Kennan, an American diplomat in Moscow and longtime Soviet observer, sent a secret yet lengthy message to his superiors in the U.S. State Department. It's known as the Long Telegram. It was described in considerable detail the uh, Russian system, where they came from, how they react, how they wanted to do business, and it jolted people. The 8,000-word message described America's former allies as a genuine and highly aggressive threat to the West. The Soviet economic system was internally weak, the message went on, and therefore it was essential for their survival that they be an aggressor. The Soviet-style communist system needed to acquire and exploit satellite countries in order to survive. They could not and would not stop short of total world domination. Cannon's message caused a sensation in Washington. President Harry Truman, his cabinet and military leaders all read the telegram. Truman was already concerned with Soviet expansionism and inclined to agree with Cannon's assessment. If the Western way of life was to survive, the Soviets would have to be contained. 
The United States, the president knew, was the only country in the world strong enough to stand up to Russia. But in order to do this, they would need to know how strong the Soviets were and be able to predict their next move. In 1945, with the war over, President Harry Truman had disbanded the United States Foreign Intelligence Service, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. Now, in the face of this new threat, Truman resurrected the idea of a civilian intelligence gathering agency. On July 25, 1947, he signed the National Security Act, creating the Central Intelligence Agency. The new agency was staffed almost entirely by veterans of the OSS. The first four directors would be military men. George Kennan's message had called for containment of Soviet aggression, but leadership at the new intelligence agency disagreed with that policy. The best defense they maintained was a strong offense. It was time to bring back some of the dirty tricks the OSS had developed in World War II. sort of two worlds of intelligence. One was intelligence gathering, traditional spies, people who meet you on park benches and, and try to steal documents. That was one side. The other side was covert action, which was much more aggressive, overthrowing a government, staging a coup d'etat. Or it would be psychological warfare, uh, sending out disinformation. Covert action is riskier, there's a higher return. Once the Cold War starts, both sides realize that there's going to be a lot of back alley action. It's going to be things happening that are not going to be on the front page of Pravda or the New York Times. On June 18, 1948, with the endorsement of President Truman, a secret and autonomous branch of the CIA was born. It was called the OPC. Office of Policy Coordination it was a wonderfully benign name to throw people off the idea that really it was the Department of Dirty Tricks. They were the covert operators. They were the hardball types who wanted to uh, jump behind enemy lines and get behind the Iron Curtain. The ultimate mission of the CIA and the OPC was to subvert the Russian hold on Eastern Europe. But in 1948, there were more immediate concerns. The Communist Party had built a strong presence in Italy, and the new agency feared the leftists might win the free elections scheduled for that spring. It was perfectly reasonable for the United States to fear that Stalin might have a master plan in which he was going to use the Communist Party in Italy and the Communist Party in France to take over those two countries. He wasn't, but uh, the United States had no means of, of knowing it. The Italian Communists were being financed from Moscow. Armed with cash, the CIA went to Italy determined to outspend the Russians. Politicians, newspaper publishers, and election officials were bribed. The CIA-backed Christian Democrats won the election. It was a big win for the West and soon led to more interventions in Europe. CIA soon had a, a clandestine station in every country in the world. We soon had all kinds of foreign agents operating. We set up various organizations, front groups, uh, to work with various peoples, indigenous, outcasts, exiles, providing them with money, inspiration, leadership, support. 
There were few limits on the OPC, but there was one basic restraint. Any and all operations were to be planned and conducted so that the responsibility for these actions could not be directly traced to the United States government. It was imperative for the credibility of U.S. foreign policy that the President or the State Department be able to plausibly deny any knowledge of such actions. Plausible deniability is the underlying definition of a covert action. Covert really means plausibly deniable by the president. Plausible denial is probably better known as spinning. Their success in swaying the Italian elections left the CIA feeling optimistic. If a country could be prevented from turning communist, maybe an existing communist system could be overthrown. In the spring of 1949, the United States chose Albania for the CIA's first attempt at subversion behind the Iron Curtain. OPC got greedy and they thought that they could overthrow communism in Eastern Europe, so they hoped to stage a counter-revolution essentially. Well, of course, the communists were good at counter-subversion. They had very strong uh, state security and they rolled it all up. It was a fiasco. Pretty much everybody we dropped behind enemy lines in Albania was captured and put on a show trial and shot. There was good reason for the efficiency of Albanian state security in rounding up the CIA-backed penetrators. They'd been tipped ahead of time in each case. The informant was a senior British intelligence official with close ties to the CIA. His name was Kim Philby. He'd been spying for the Soviets since the 1930s. The Albanian operation had been a cruel yet valuable lesson for the CIA. The Soviets were not to be underestimated, but neither was the OPC. And they were just getting started. By 1950, the CIA and its new operations arm, the OPC, realized they were at a distinct disadvantage when it came to clandestine warfare. For one thing, the Russians had been at it longer. They'd been spying on the world and each other since the Tsars had been in power. The KGB had the backing of a totalitarian state and was extremely powerful and was well known to the people. I mean, it had a secret police arm. KGB guy can grab you in the street and you might not be heard from for a long time, if ever. CIA has no law enforcement powers. Never has, never will. The KGB win, in my opinion, because they developed more good spies operating in the United States than the United States developed good spies operating behind the Iron Curtain. It was easier to keep secrets in a closed society, and it was much more difficult to spy in a country when access to that country was controlled and everyone in it was being watched. The communists helped get themselves in power by subversion, so they were good at it. They knew how to do uh, sting operations and to spy and to run covert operations, and the, the KGB was really better than we were, at least at the outset. And they were very good at sucking us in, making us think that we were having a success, uh, drawing us in and then slamming the door on our hands. 
Ground zero in the Cold War was the occupied city of Berlin. The line that divided the Russian-held sector from that of England, France, and the United States marked the figurative border between East and West, between the free world and the authoritarian world. There were literally thousands of Soviet and East German state security agents in Berlin, enough to watch every man, woman, and child who lived there. The CIA operatives had a nickname for the former German capital. They called it Kidnap Town. It was wild and woolly. It was the Wild West. The Soviets would try to kidnap our agents, and this guy would be walking down the street, and a car would come along and just pull him into the car, and he would disappear. There was an unwritten agreement that they didn't kidnap Americans. They mostly take our clients, Eastern Europeans who are working for us or Germans who are working for us. There were other rules of procedure in this deadly game of cat and mouse, of tit for tat. Arrest one of their spies and they took one of yours. Captured spies were not prosecuted, but instead exchanged. These exchanges usually took place on a bridge like the Glanicky, which spanned the Spray River. It marked the border between East and West Berlin. Assassination was not an option because retaliation was sure to come in kind. You're much better off knowing who the top agent is than to shoot him and get rid of him. Who will, who will replace him? You don't know who the replacement is. You've identified that agent. You're that much ahead of the game. Then you try to see if you can double that agent back. You begin to try to feed him information or open contact with him. In other words, this is the game. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Actually, we had sort of a tacit agreement not to kill each other, you know, not to murder each other. We met the CIA people all the time. I myself did it a lot of time, but mainly with the purpose to, well, to find out what sort of a man he is, whether he is recruitable or non-recruitable, and so on. But it's, well, it's a normal procedure for spying. In September 1949, CIA and U.S. Air Force scientists detected the presence of a radioactive cloud over the North Pacific, which indicated that the Russians had detonated an atomic device somewhere on the mainland of Asia. Now the Russians, too, had the ultimate weapon of terror. Would they use it? And if they did, how and where would they use it? At the annual May Day Parade in Moscow in 1948, the Soviets had unveiled a new bomber, the Tu-4. The fact that they developed the plane so quickly gave rise to the theory that the Russians were far more advanced in their bomber production than previously thought and might actually have more bombers than the United States. Now that the Russians had displayed the bomb for all the world to see, that debate took on new urgency. Was there a gap? Did the Russians have more bombers and atomic bombs than the Americans? While the CIA searched for answers, the United States stepped up the pace in the arms race. In 1953, Dwight Eisenhower came to the American presidency with a pledge to end the Korean War. He brought with him a new enthusiasm and respect for clandestine warfare. Once he'd negotiated a truce in America's last remaining hot war, he set out to fight the Cold War. 
It's only with the, uh, the election of Dwight D. Eisenhower that covert action becomes simply the main activity of the CIA. Now, Truman had been won over it bit by bit, but he would go so far and no further. Eisenhower was fascinated by covert action. He was impressed by what OSS had done for him to help him in Europe during the war, and he thought this was a technique that could be more widely applied. And uh, he distrusted the use of the army. He didn't want to get into that, being a general himself. So he turned the CIA into a private presidential army. While Harry Truman had authorized covert action against the Soviet bloc, Korea, and Southeast Asia, Eisenhower saw opportunities for covert action wherever American interests were at stake. And the former Supreme Allied commander especially appreciated the concept of plausible deniability. Eisenhower appointed Alan Dulles, ex-OSS spymaster, as the new director of Central Intelligence. The two men endorsed covert action as by far the lesser of two evils. Neither man had any desire to fight another hot war, but both were looking to score a win against the Soviets in the Cold One. Since the 1930s, much of the Western world depended on Iran as their oil supplier. The Shahs had an agreement with a British oil company which paid them royalties. Then in 1951, a nationalist named Mohammad Mossadegh came to power, undercutting the weak Shah. Mossadegh nationalized the British oil holdings, turned a cold shoulder to the Shah's Western allies, and began to court favor with Russia. The United States, at risk of losing influence in the Middle East, turned to the CIA. Kermit Roosevelt, grandson to Teddy, was the CIA's best Middle Eastern operative. He had himself smuggled into the palace in Tehran, where he met secretly with Reza Pahlavi, the young Shah. Roosevelt tried to convince the Shah to denounce Mossadegh before the Iranian National Assembly. Pahlavi agreed, but shortly afterward, rioting broke out in the streets and the Shah fled to Rome. Roosevelt said the Shah is a wimp, but he still had a plan left. He paid $10,000 to some street toughs and circus muscle men to stage a riot favoring the Shah. To everyone's surprise, the riot escalated and Mossadegh was forced to relinquish his power. The Shah returned to rule as a strong ally of the Western influences that had given him back his throne. The CIA's success in Iran brought elation to Washington. Restoring the Shah through covert means had been relatively easy. The entire operation had cost less than $200,000. And the CIA's involvement in the coup had stayed a secret. This gave the CIA the feeling that they could do anything. Uh, that if you, could, if you could get rid of the communists in, in Iran, why couldn't you do it elsewhere? So they did the next year in Guatemala. In 1954, the Central American country of Guatemala seemed on track to become the first country in the Western Hemisphere to turn communist. That country's apparently leftist president, Jacobo Arbenz, had seized the holdings there of the United Fruit Company, an American enterprise. 
Flush with the success of Iran, the CIA organized a revolt in Guatemala. They raised a guerrilla army, deployed a secret air force, and even chose a leader to replace Arbenz. The CIA's man, Colonel Castillo Armas, was virtually unknown in the general population, and his army was outnumbered. But propaganda broadcasts from secret CIA radio stations portrayed the rebel leader as the people's choice for president, in command of an overwhelming force. The rebels attacked Guatemala City on June 18th under CIA air support. That support had been approved personally by President Eisenhower. It was over in a matter of days. Arbenz was driven from power and the CIA-backed Armas was installed as president. And that made them very heady with success. The feeling was they were kind of world shakers and world movers and they could probably uh, overthrow any government they really put their mind to. But the CIA would soon find that success in the Cold War was all too often an illusion. June of 1950, civil war split Korea in two. The Russians supported North Korea. The United States and her NATO allies entered the war in defense of the South. During the course of this conflict, the United States became alarmed as captured American servicemen were displayed in show trials. They were shocked further when these servicemen denounced their own country for crimes and aggression against the Korean people. How can I go back and face my family in a civilized world? How can I tell them these things that I am a criminal in the eyes of humanity? They are my flesh and blood. The CIA suspected the communists were using drugs to brainwash prisoners. In an effort to find out what drugs the enemy was using and develop some means of countering their effects, the CIA began a series of top-secret projects that would ultimately be known as MKUltra. These programs tested various drugs on human guinea pigs. Army doctors had observed that certain anesthetics made soldiers speak freely while unconscious. The CIA experimented with various truth serums for use in debriefing captured agents, and they were particularly interested in developing a means of controlling or changing human thought patterns and behavior. The ultimate aim of these tests was to create nothing less than a human robot. In some cases, the persons being tested were volunteers. In others, they were completely uninformed as to what was happening to them. At one point in 1953, seven volunteers were kept on lysergic acid, diethylamide, better known as LSD, for 77 days. Following another LSD experiment that November, Frank Olson, an army scientist who had volunteered to be a guinea pig, became severely depressed and committed suicide by hurling himself through a 10th story hotel window. 
Subproject 142 of MKUltra was a series of experiments with animals to see if they could be used as delivery systems for microphones, cameras, and bombs. In one case, a cat was surgically implanted with a listening device, batteries and all. In his tail was an antenna for transmitting back to his handlers. The CIA scientists took their eavesdropping cat to a park for a test run, but before they even got started, the animal was run over by a taxi. Despite occasional setbacks, like the death of Frank Olson, the MK Ultra experiments continued until 1975. In that year, a Senate investigation into CIA activities brought the excesses of MKUltra into the open, causing much embarrassment for the agency. The CIA was feeling confident with its successes in Iran and Guatemala, but the Americans still hadn't been able to penetrate the Soviet bloc, or had they? In 1953, the CIA partnered with British intelligence for a brazen foray into and underneath the Soviet sector of Berlin. The plan was to tunnel into East Berlin to reach a bank of underground phone cables. From there, they could tap into secret communications between Soviet and East German military headquarters. The Berlin tunnel operation ran for 11 months, not including the year it took for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to dig it. It ran 15 feet below the surface for 300 yards and had six feet of headroom. Many of the details surrounding the tunnel remain classified to this day. What is known remains a topic of controversy. Questions still abound as to the genuineness of the intelligence extracted from these phone taps. Because the KGB apparently knew from the beginning that the West was digging the tunnel. One of the tunnel planners, a British MI6 operative named George Blake, was in fact a KGB spy. It was not until 1961, when Blake was betrayed by a defector and arrested, that the CIA learned the truth. The KGB had known about the tunnel all along, before the first shovelful of dirt was turned. Why did the KGB wait a full year before alerting the Soviet military that their phones were being tapped? In the years following Blake's arrest, interviews with Soviet defectors revealed that the KGB, in order to protect Blake from discovery, deliberately failed to inform the Soviet military of the tunnel's existence and the fact that the CIA was listening to their phone conversations. George Blake's safety was that important to them. And having an agent at the heart of British intelligence at the time was regarded by them as priceless. And all I can say is that it took a very strong KGB influence to be willing to uh, forget the Soviet military. So I imagine that most of that stuff is valid today, just as it was valid then. The CIA had tried with uncertain success to penetrate Soviet security from 15 feet below. Their next attempt to spy on the Russians would take them more than a mile into the sky.
Since the Cold War began, the CIA had been unable to penetrate the Soviet bloc far enough to discover just how immediate the Soviet threat was. Then, in 1954, President Eisenhower approved a top-secret plan to develop an airplane capable of flying across the Soviet Union, north to south, without refueling. The plane, designated U-2, would eventually fly at 70 to 80,000 feet, higher than Soviet missiles could then reach. It was outfitted with a high-resolution camera designed by the Polaroid Corporation. In order to maintain utmost secrecy, responsibility for developing and operating the U-2 was given not to the Air Force, but to the CIA. Eisenhower did not trust the military to be secure. And it's hard to imagine, but he's the guy who picked CIA to be in charge of the U-2, the SR-71, and the Corona satellite. Um, it's the kind of thing that the military could have done, I think, and probably should have done. Um, but Eisenhower wanted security, and he thought the only way to do it was to let CIA run the thing. The CIA estimated they could safely fly the U-2 over Russia for two years before the Russians would be able to detect the plane and shoot it down. But it's now clear that the Soviets tracked the first flight and every one after that. Khrushchev knew it was overflying Russia at 80,000 feet. We had announced that the height that that, that plane could fly was 65,000 feet. It was flying at 80,000 feet because Khrushchev's most powerful missile would only go to 65,000 feet. So here was this plane flying overhead, his missiles unable to reach it, and he was furious, fit to be tied. The U-2 flights gave the CIA the comprehensive look inside the Soviet Union they'd wanted for 10 years. In approximately two dozen flights over a two-year period, the U-2 pinpointed Soviet air bases, allowing the U.S. Air Force not only to count bombers and missiles, but to specifically target these sites. But the Americans did not hold their advantage for long. In 1957, the Russians stunned the West with two demonstrations of technological strength. In August, they successfully fired their first long-range intercontinental missile, and two months later launched Sputnik, the first satellite into space. It was immediately apparent to the CIA that a country capable of launching a rocket into space was more than capable of shooting down the U-2. The flights were halted temporarily. The U-2 flew only sporadically over the next three years. Then, on May Day, 1960, the Russians finally shot one down. The Americans, thinking the pilot, Francis Gary Powers, had been killed, called the flight a weather plane that went astray. But the Soviets had the CIA pilot in hand and displayed him to the world in a show trial. The CIA had been caught red-handed. An embarrassed American president was forced to take responsibility for this spy flight, and the Russians scored a major propaganda coup. Power's ill-fated mission brought a halt to the U-2 flights over Soviet airspace. Plausible deniability had sounded good in theory, but when the chips were down, it hadn't worked. 
the idea was to uh, keep Eisenhower from having to admit that he had approved the flight. Well, eventually Eisenhower himself made the decision that he was going to admit that he'd done it and be honest with the world and with the American people. Plausible deniability, if it didn't die with the U-2, you might as well say it died with the U-2. He simply thought that the U-2 was impregnable, and that the Soviets weren't capable or bright enough to knock it down. This was one of the problems. We did not think through in some of our covert actions what happens if the things go sour. Less than six months after the last U-2 flight over the Soviet Union, the CIA was flying again, this time even higher. Corona, the world's first spy satellite, was successfully launched into space on August 18, 1960, after more than a dozen failures. Since the launch of a rocket ship was difficult to keep secret, the United States publicized the launchings but concealed the rocket's real mission. To the world, Corona was a weather satellite known as Discoverer, but its real mission was photographing the Russians from space and dropping the film back to Earth in a protective capsule. On that first successful flight, Corona photographed one and a half million miles of Soviet airspace, more than all the U-2 flights combined. By the time this particular photographic satellite had finished its work over a period of two or three years, the United States had a very good idea of how strong the Russians were militarily. In fact, the information pulled together over time was sufficiently accurate that when the SALT-1 negotiations were going on, the Russians finally said, we won't tell you all the things that we have. We'll use your figures. In the 1960 presidential campaign, candidate John F. Kennedy made political capital by criticizing the Eisenhower administration for falling behind Russia in the production of missiles and warheads. This assault put his opponent, Richard Nixon, in a difficult position. As Eisenhower's vice president, Nixon was privy to CIA reports which proved there was no missile gap. In fact, Russia was having difficulties with her intercontinental missile system. But this information was top secret, and Nixon couldn't use it to rebut Kennedy's attacks. Another Kennedy campaign promise called for assisting the Cuban patriots who wanted to overthrow Cuban Premier Fidel Castro, an avowed communist with strong Soviet ties. Here again, Nixon was unable to divulge another top secret, that the Republican incumbents were already planning a CIA-backed invasion of Cuba by a force of exiles. Kennedy won the election, but both of these issues would soon come back to haunt him. The CIA had begun training a lot of Cuban exiles in Central America, you know, the theory that they would go back to Cuba and, and overthrow Castro. And Kennedy inherited this expedition. It's not something he would have initiated himself, but he was, in a sense, trapped by it. On April 16, 1961, less than three months after Kennedy took office, a brigade of CIA-backed Cuban exiles prepared to invade Cuba. The plan called for a military-style landing at the Bay of Pigs. 
But when preliminary bombings raised an outcry in the United Nations, U.S. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson demanded the attack be canceled. That hesitation would prove fatal. Adlai Stevenson just really wrecked it by saying, you know, I'm here at the United Nations giving out this information on my word, and you're doing something else makes me look like a liar. We're going to have to change things so you don't fly that second flight of airplanes. So President Kennedy stood down our second flight of airplanes. There wasn't time to call off the landings, but Kennedy canceled the air support. By this time, Castro's army was ready and waiting. Although President Kennedy publicly took blame for the Bay of Pigs fiasco, privately he blamed the CIA. Both Director of Central Intelligence Alan Dulles and his covert chief Richard Bissell, the man behind the U-2 and Corona successes, were forced to resign. Bay of Pigs was a horrible setback. Uh, they lost their director, they lost their head of dirty tricks. Uh, the President of the United States vowed to, quietly vowed, to break the CIA into a thousand pieces. Uh, they lost their sort of prime position as the president's action arm. It, it was the end of sort of high opera covert action, but it was not the end of covert action by any means. As bad as the humiliation of the Cuban invasion had been for the new president, the failure at the Bay of Pigs only served to intensify ongoing American efforts to depose Fidel Castro. Now Kennedy wanted him as badly as the CIA did. Cuban Premier Fidel Castro had come to power in 1959 and immediately made an enemy of the United States by first seizing American property and then dispatching teams of guerrillas to invade other Latin American countries. He'd been in power less than a year when the CIA began considering plans to eliminate him. Since the CIA did not wish to be directly involved in an assassination plot, most of these attempts involved third parties. Some potential operatives were recruited from South Florida's large population of anti-Castro Cuban exiles. But the exiles were infiltrated by members of Castro's secret police who'd been trained by intelligence officers from the Soviet bloc. Plots against Castro were compromised before they left the United States. Mongoose, the CIA codename for the government-wide operation to overthrow Castro, came under the personal direction of Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. Richard Helms, the CIA's new Deputy Director for Plans, found himself under intense pressure from the White House. Both uh, President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were obviously very upset by the Bay of Pigs' failure. And I haven't any doubt that uh, they decided that they were going to do everything they possibly could to get even with Castro. Bobby Kennedy pushed very hard. There wasn't any doubt about it, just as hard as he could. But uh, there were limits to how fast one could do this kind of thing. Some of the more imaginative plans to kill Castro bordered on the ludicrous. They tried to put uh, poisons on a cigar to give uh, Castro, so he would smoke a cigar that would kill him. 
They wanted to uh, plant an exploding seashell off the coast of Cuba in the hopes that Castro, who was a skin diver, would pick it up. Why they thought Castro would pick up that particular shell was never clear. Another plan involved sprinkling thallium salts into Castro's shoes, which were expected to make his beard fall out and destroy his charisma. Still another plan had the CIA enlisting the help of the American Mafia in putting a hit on Castro. The Dons were more than happy to accept the contract. Castro's revolution had brought a halt to their gambling operations in Havana and driven them out of Cuba. But getting to Castro would prove difficult. At least one expedition of Mafia-backed Cuban expatriates disappeared soon after landing in Cuba. As each plan failed, or was discounted as impractical, the CIA and the Kennedy brothers became more determined to get rid of the Cuban dictator. The most ominous effect of the Bay of Pigs episode was that it made the Russians bold. Premier Nikita Khrushchev decided Kennedy was weak and stepped up the pressure by sending more arms to Cuba. Then, in another act of Soviet belligerence, the Berlin Wall went up, seemingly overnight. The reports came in, they're building a wall right in the middle of the city. Why are they doing this? Well, we didn't understand Lenin's famous saying, people must not be allowed to vote with their feet. You cannot leave communism, you can't walk out because that threatens the whole system. So the Berlin Wall was to keep people in, not to keep us out. In 1960, a disgruntled Soviet military intelligence officer, Oleg Penkovsky, began to pass secret documents and photographs to the CIA. This material included descriptions of Soviet missile emplacements. Two years later, in October 1962, a CIA spy in Cuba reported something strange going on in the Cuban countryside. His report prompted a U-2 flyover of the island. Photographs from this and subsequent flights revealed what the CIA believed were missile sites under construction. CIA analysts checked the photographs against the manual of the Russian SS-4 medium-range missiles Penkovsky had given them. In the manual, was a diagram which showed exactly what a completed missile firing position should look like. By comparing the diagram with the U-2 photographs, the CIA was able to determine that it would be several days before the missiles could be ready for firing. This information gave President Kennedy the time he needed to decide his strategy and to confront and face down Khrushchev. Pankovsky's manual may have been the most critical piece of intelligence in the Cold War because it prevented what could have been a catastrophic overreaction by the United States. The CIA's U-2 spy flights, coupled with the information provided by Penkovsky, gave President Kennedy the intelligence he needed to confront the Soviets in the Western Hemisphere and to force their hand. The Soviets dismantled their missile sites and the crisis was over, for the moment. The missile crisis had passed, but Operation Mongoose, the plan for the removal, one way or another, of Premier Fidel Castro, remained the CIA's top priority. The agency, at the urging of Robert Kennedy, continued to shop for assassins. 
they believed they'd found one in Rolando Cobela, a Cuban major with access to Castro. In the fall of 1963, a high-level CIA staff officer met with Cobela in Paris. Cobela was willing to kill the dictator as part of a coup d'etat. The Cuban asked for sniper's rifles and poisons. He also requested a personal meeting with Robert Kennedy, the president's brother. That request was denied. Another meeting was set for the following month. On November 22nd, Kubela met with a CIA case officer who offered him a pen capable of injecting poison with instructions to stick it into Castro at his first opportunity. Cabela refused the weapon, but asked that the rifles be smuggled into Cuba for him. On the day that meeting took place in Paris, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Speculation arose in some corners of Washington that Cabela was a double agent actually working for Castro. Some senator got the idea that because a CIA man was in touch with Cabela on the day that Kennedy was assassinated. He had something to do with the assassination. That's nonsense. And the conversation that he had, this man had with Cabela had nothing to do with assassinating Castro. It had to do with whether they could organize a coup in Cuba. This is exactly what the Kennedys wanted us to try to do. There were other interpretations. President Lyndon Johnson himself would later tell an advisor Kennedy was trying to kill Castro, but Castro got him first. The new president sent word to his Central Intelligence Agency that there were to be no more attempts on the life of the Cuban leader. The Cuban Missile Crisis was the most dangerous confrontation of the Cold War. It would not be the last, but never again would tensions between the superpowers rise to such a boiling point. For three more decades, the global chess match plodded on. In the glacial struggle, neither side was willing to commit its most powerful peace. The skirmishes took place for the most part in the Third World. Vietnam, Central America, South America, the Middle East, Africa. Superpowers vied for influence, prestige, and more power. For 28 years, the Berlin Wall stood as a symbol of the political, economic, and philosophical divisions between East and West. Then in 1989 and 1990, political unrest behind the Iron Curtain led to the reunification of Germany. The Cold War, after 45 years, came to an end. The wall had come tumbling down. Could a winner be declared? We won the Cold War. Let's not hide our heads under a bushel here. We won the Cold War. Communism was rejected. The evidence that this agency has that we won the Cold War is we have a piece of what I think was the most palpable dramatic representation of the Cold War, and that was the Berlin Wall. We have it on our compound, three panels of the Berlin Wall. We got a piece of the rock. <laughs> but how much credit could the CIA take for this victory? The CIA did the job that it was supposed to do. It had its slice of the thing was to find out what was going on in the Soviet Union, how big their military establishment was, what they were doing in the way of producing new weapons, how many intercontinental ballistic missiles they had, 
etc. But the American people also contributed to this. They paid the taxes that paid the bill. We won the Cold War in effect, and less because of anything we did than because communism turned out to be a moral disaster, an economic disaster, and a political disaster. And the people of Russia couldn't stand it any longer, and the people in Eastern Europe hated it anyway. And that's why the Cold War came to an end. It was a clear victory, but it had taken a long time, 45 years. The best evidence of the CIA's effectiveness in fighting the Cold War is that it was able to buy time as the Cold War progressed. By providing a constant window into the closed society of the Soviet Union, the CIA kept fear and paranoia from driving the superpowers into war. The world stood on the brink for 45 years, but World War III never came. In the end, one way of life prevailed over another. The ideals of one society gave way to the imagination of the other. One system collapsed. The other endured. The Berlin Wall at last was down, and the people were reunited. The documentary you just heard is a concise history of critical covert elements contained in the CIA's history. While it represents a reasonable and appropriate position on most of the topics, there are two statements of fact, in particular, that I would like to call out. The first relates to whether or not the Kennedy brothers, either one of them, ever specifically called for an assassination plot related to Fidel Castro. Comments in this episode's video suggest that, but the historical record does not support the idea that either Robert or John Kennedy called for an assassination plot related to Fidel Castro. It's no secret now that President Kennedy and his brother, the Attorney General Robert Kennedy, wanted Fidel removed from power in Cuba. After Castro thwarted the Kennedy-approved and CIA-orchestrated invasion at the Bay of Pigs in April 1961, the Kennedys continued to seek means of toppling the Cuban leader. In early 1962, according to a CIA memo, Bobby Kennedy told a group of CIA and Pentagon officials that a solution to the Cuban problem carried the top priority in the United States government. All else is secondary. Soon after, the CIA, which had begun planning murder plots against Castro, plots which began during the Eisenhower administration, once again began devising a variety of assassination plans, efforts that would involve, among so many other things, an exploding seashell, poison pills, a toxin-contaminated diving suit, and even the use of mafia associates to make a hit. Ever since this clandestine activity started becoming public in the 1970s, former CIA officers have maintained that John and Robert Kennedy were fully aware of and supportive of the agency's lethal intentions, and that the CIA conspirators were not rogues, but loyal civil servants following orders. Kennedy defenders have fiercely countered that there is no credible evidence that the pair specifically endorsed or authorized an assassination hit related to Fidel Castro. In his book, entitled Robert Kennedy and His Times, 
historian and former Kennedy administration official Arthur Schlesinger Jr. passionately declared, the available evidence clearly leads to the conclusion that the Kennedys did not know about the Castro assassination plots before the Bay of Pigs or about the pursuit of those plots by the CIA after the Bay of Pigs. Schlesinger would go on to say that no one who knew John and Robert Kennedy well believed that they would conceivably countenance a program of assassination. He would say, I too find the idea incredible that these two men, so filled with love of life and so conscious of the ironies of history, could thus deny all the values and purposes that animated their existence. In 1998, at Schlesinger's urging, the New York Times published an editor's note saying that while some historians and officials with knowledge of intelligence matters have asserted that JFK ordered the CIA to assassinate Castro, others also close to the president fiercely dispute their account. The second matter has to do with the comments made about Frank Olson and the MK Ultra program. While the documentary was accurate in that the Frank Olson matter was a stain on the reputation of the CIA, in actuality, the comments made in the tape did not properly represent the seriousness of the charges against the CIA and the Frank Olson case. We will cover the Frank Olson matter in a separate episode, but the implication was that Olson's death was not a suicide, and in fact, he may have been murdered by the CIA. The Olson family received a compensatory check in 1976, delivered to them directly by the then-President Gerald Ford in the White House. After more than a generation of seeking the truth by the Olson family, on November 28, 2012, some 36 years after the original settlement, sons Eric and Nils Olson filed suit in the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. They were seeking unspecified compensatory damages as well as access to documents related to their father's death and other matters that they claimed the CIA had withheld from them. The case was dismissed in July 2013, due in part to the 1976 settlement between the family and the government. In the decision dismissing the suit, U.S. District Judge James Bosberg wrote, while the court must limit its analysis to the four corners of the complaint, the skeptical reader may wish to know that the public record supports many of the allegations in the family suit, far-fetched as they may sound. Thank you for listening to episode 115 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 